Dadhood. Modern Dadhood Podcast. Adam Flaherty hey, Mark. wouldn't if the last person I ever thought I would see here right now on my computer screen is Adam Flaherty, but here you are. In the flesh. What a treat. In the pixels. Well, if you're here and I'm here, that can only mean one thing. This is Modern Dadhood, which is an ongoing conversation about the joys, challenges, and general insanity of being a dad in this moment. I think we've already established that you're Adam Flaherty and you are a dad to two girls, seven and four. And you are Mark Checkett. Is that, oh. that is how you pronounce it, right? Yes. yes. And you are a dad to two boys who are, if I remember, they're twins and they uh, are not two any longer. They're three, but they're not yet four. So they're three. Yeah. There's two of them, but they're three. <sighs> Getting off to a good start here. In our last episode, we spoke to uh, Paul Ramsey. I don't mm-hmm. know if you remember that. I was there. I remember. Mostly about his experiences as a as a son. And then we talked to Craig, whom you'll hear from in, in moments, in a few moments. And it just kind of struck me, like, between the, the two discussions, how different our experiences can be, even though there are a lot of these common, common themes. And I think in both episodes, you'll hear get our guests say some pretty similar things, even though their stories are quite different. Something that's becoming more clear to me, the more dads that we talk to about their experiences, is that there is certainly no one single way to describe what it means to be a dad. And yet we hear a lot of common themes. Such as? The importance of communication. Open communication. Open communication with your kids. Such as fear of technology. That's a big one. I would say maybe the fact that uh, a lot of us dads feel as if maybe we don't quite have any idea what's going on. Yeah. Cluelessness. Sure. This is just an observation. We do hear lots of recurring themes from dads in different situations. Tell you one dad who's not a clueless dad. Who's that? Craig Melvin. I was going to say Craig Melvin. Yeah. But instead you were, you were like, who's that? I was just playing along, you see. <laughs> Who's that? Is that what it sounded like? And we did have a fantastic conversation with news anchor, television personality, author, father, Craig Melvin, just the other day, which is going to be a really fun one to play back very soon. What you talking about, Adam? <laughs> Hey, here's something I just realized. In short, you know, I think there's an interesting difference between Paul and Craig's stories in that in Craig's, he goes to pretty great lengths so so far as to write a book to learn about where he came from and and learn about his his dad to better understand who he is and, and why he, Craig, is the way that he is today and uh, and sort of goes on this 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 quest, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And with Paul, Paul was okay, sort of letting that go, you know, right. because he had somebody that came in and filled that position and filled that that role of dad. Didn't matter that he wasn't a blood relative; he's been Paul's dad for Paul's whole life. And in Craig's case, he did have this biological dad who, for many years, 
really wasn't the dad that Craig needed him to be. And then much later in Craig's life, he put in the work to examine that and to try to rebuild that relationship. Yeah. And here, and in thinking about these sort of common themes and these similarities that exist between maybe two seemingly different people or, or different stories, we're coming up on 50 episodes. I'm not sure if you've been keeping track. This is 49, right? This is 49. And here's what I think. I think a fun exercise for us to do would be to go back through our archive and pick out some of those little knowledge nuggets and do like a deep dive through the archive to find some of these, these common themes and similarities and put together a little bit of like a compilation insights, greatest hits, double disc set compendium episode. Sure. We're going to put this out on CD. Thinking about it, maybe tape. What do you think about this idea? I think that sounds awesome. We'll get it in the works. Well, I'll tell you what, Mark. We have some really, honestly, genuinely meaningful conversations on this podcast. And I feel so lucky that we get to have these conversations about fatherhood with so many different people from different walks of life. This conversation that we had with Craig Melvin, I think... I think it's one of my favorites. I think it's pretty, it's up there for me as well. Although I did, um, I don't want to start any competition here, but I was just listening to the Winston E. Scott episode before we started recording. And I think I was pretty, I mean, how do you compete? I, I don't with think an astronaut, but having the opportunity to sit down and, and, and chat with, with Craig was honestly, truly a, a pleasure, especially after having just read his book. Yeah. I was going to say you listened to the book, right? And he I narrates did, yes. it, right? I, 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 thanks for thanks for calling me out. So what's it? No, no, no. What I was going to ask is, what is it like to, you know, spend hours listening to someone narrate their book, and then immediately after to speak with that person, like to have a conversation with that voice that you've yeah. been listening to? Um, is that weird? It was. It wasn't weird, but it was like, it was as if I already. Also, the story is very personal. And so sitting down and talking with him, I just kind of already felt like I, I knew him a little bit. And so I think the weird, the weird thing is that he certainly did not have <laughs> that type of feeling sitting down and talking with me. It was <laughs> fully one-sided, but also uh, I was listening to the book at like 1.5 speed. So he's so Craig's so really hearing slow. him speak at one regular, what, what, is it, what regular speed is, <laughs> was a little weird. Yeah. I didn't expect him to be so so much slower in real life. Let's waste no more time and, and let's just get into the conversation with Craig Melvin. Roll tape. We are really excited to welcome Craig Melvin to the conversation. Craig is a massively popular news anchor and television personality appearing on Dateline NBC. I don't know if you've heard of that. Maybe the Today Show. I don't know if you've heard of that one. Craig's also a dad to a seven-year-old and a four-year-old. And he recently released a book called Pops, Learning to Be a Son and a Father, which is available worldwide. And aside from sitting down and, and writing a book about fatherhood, he's also explored the subject a whole bunch in his digital series for the Today Show called Dad's Got This, which is really fantastic. So Craig, welcome to Modern Dadhood. We're really happy to have you on the show. Oh, Adam, Mark, thanks for having me. And uh, thank you so much for spotlighting 
modern dadhood. Kudos to you guys. Our pleasure. Yeah. So we want to chat a bit about your book. So Pops covers a lot of ground in exploring both your sort of evolving relationship with your dad and your own role as a father of two. Uh, and an overarching theme in the book is is obviously addiction. So I'm wondering if you can maybe share briefly or as briefly as you can sort of summarize a book into, you know, a, a minute or two, um, who your father was to you growing up and I guess the events that ultimately led to you deciding to examine that relationship for the book. Um, it's a, it's a, that's a good question. It's a big question. Um, you know, I, my dad growing up, I think was, was probably like a lot of dads of his generation. Um, he'll be 70 this year. Um, but he was, you know, remote, distant. Um, he did, he did not emote a great deal. Um, and he struggled mightily with, with alcohol addiction. And, um, it was one of those things that, I mean, he spent almost 40 years as a mail clerk at the post office working the third shift. So, you know, you work that shift during the day, you're sleeping because at night you're working. So our schedules in general were, were always off. And, and he was a recreational beer guy. I mean, he, you know, he, I remember growing up, always seeing him with the Budweiser in his hand or a cup of Budweiser in his hand. And then as I got older, um, he started drinking more. And then when he retired uh, about five years ago now, um, he had nothing else to do. Um, he had not developed hobbies and interests, primarily because of the shifty work. And so the, the drinking that had already gotten pretty bad, it just spiraled out of control. And in 2018, he got in a, a fender bender that was caused by him being blackout drunk. And so at that point, my brother and I and, and um, a few of us in the family our concern was that he was going to hurt or kill either himself or someone else um, because he had started to do more of this blackout drunk driving. And so we, we, we staged an intervention with the professional, Adam. And at the age of 67, my father, who had been a, a functional and then barely functional alcoholic for the better part of 45 years, Gave it up wow. um, after about eight weeks in a uh, in inpatient treatment facility. So the book is about it's about his journey, it's about our journey, but it's also a celebration, as you know, it's about the celebration of fatherhood in general. Something that um, doesn't get celebrated as often as it should, in my opinion. Well, we agree with you. <laughs> yep, we agree enough that we started a podcast <laughs> about it. <laughs> yeah. So I'm sure that there was a lot of planning, preparation, uh, maybe even a little meditation leading up to the interview portion of this and and eventually the writing for Pops. And I I wonder if you had any fear going in to the process at all. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I've throughout the course of my career, I've interviewed presidents and actors and musicians and, you know, regular folks who've done extraordinary things, but I'd never interviewed a parent and and certainly, uh, about the subject matter that's covered in the book. Um, so yes, I was, I was, I was nervous and fearful about the interview itself. And it's it's the interview. It was actually several interviews, um, which is one of the highlights I've got 
four and a half hours with my father just talking about his life and answering all of my questions. And so my kids and the, my kids' kids and their kids, if they so choose one day, they'll be able to hear their grandfather's voice. I didn't, I didn't have that, that, that luxury. I never heard the voice of, of my, my grandparents and my grandfather, I should say, like either on either side, but no, yeah, I was nervous, but I was more nervous uh, about the finished copy of the book and having him read that. Mm. And it was very important to me that um, before the editor signed off on it, um, before my my wife, you know, before she took a look at it, I wanted him to to read the first draft. And um, I sent it down to him. I mailed him a copy, and um, and you know, it took him about a week or so. And he called me up. I uh, said, "Oh, I finished your book." I said, "Well, what'd you think?" He said, "Well." Well, it, it, it's all there. Said, well, is, is, is it accurate? He said, "Oh no, no, it's 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 accurate." It's. Uh, I said, "Man, I, I'm I'm impressed you're able to remember so much." Mm. Uh, and that was it. And I, at that point, Mark, you know, obviously, I wanted people to read the story, and I want people to 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 use the book as an opportunity to examine some of the relationships that they have with their parents and their children. But at the end of the day, I wrote the book for my dad, um, and I wrote it for, for my kids, and I selfishly wrote it for my—I wrote it for me. Sure. And um, but I do think that there's there's something in there for for everyone else too. Well, Craig, in the book, you you describe uh, various other father figures in your life who really shaped who you would become as a father uh, when your when your own father couldn't fulfill that role. I wonder, can you point to things that you do now or ways that you act as a dad that you can link back to these men? That's a good question. And I should note that, you know, my, my father's work ethic and I write about it in the book. I I got that from him. You know, my, my, my dad, you know, at an early age, I mean, he would weekends, holidays. I mean, the man, even when he was in the throes of his addiction, was, was still working overtime and double time to help help put food on the table. And then you find out years later he was doing it while he was drunk or hung over and it made it even more impressive. But it, along the way, you know, my my uh, my Uncle James, I read about a fair amount in the book, my, my father's um, older brother. I think from him, I developed a genuine interest in, in politics and government. Um, he worked at the Department of Labor in Washington and, and from a, an early age, I remember being in, I didn't know exactly what it was that he did, uh, but I knew he worked for the government. And, he, and, you know, when you're seven, your perspective is obviously a little, little different. Mm-hmm. And uh, he always drove a Cadillac. And so I, I came to associate Cadillacs with success and my uncle was success. And, and, and so he, we would always talk about, you know, politics, whatever, whatever was happening in government at the time. Uh, so I, I think he helped plant those seeds. And then years later, I, I landed an internship in Washington and uh, I actually spent a month with him, uh, which is one of the highlights of my life. Uh, so I got that from uncle James. I think my uh, right about uncle pop is what we call him. His real name is Frank. And I'll be honest with you, I don't know why we call him Pop. There's never really been a, a full explanation of how that came to be his um, his nickname. But um, my uncle Frank helped me develop a, a 
a genuine interest in sports. He played high school basketball. And I remember going to see him play when I was, you know, five or six. Um, and, you know, I just, even from teachers and coaches along the way, I just, yeah. I think I picked up um, genuine curiosity from a few teachers that I was fortunate enough to have um, in high school. My AP a government and world history teacher, for instance, really sort of helped open my eyes to the world. I think one of the things I discovered while writing the book is, is that my dad's relationship with his father was virtually non-existent. He didn't even know who his dad was until he was almost a teenager. And and so growing up, I was angry and, and resentful of my dad because I wanted him to be something that he wasn't capable of being. Forget the addiction. I, I mean, I wanted him to be something that that he had not seen. And I think we do that from time to time in our society. We expect people to be certain things when they haven't been presented with examples of those things. And here I was expecting my dad to, to be Dr. Heathcliff Huxtable. And, and he barely knew his own father. Right. A few minutes ago, you brought up an intervention that you had uh, with your father a few years back. And in the book, you used the word village to describe the people that came around at that time and rallied around him. And I just, in, in listening to the book, just it, that word stuck out to me. I thought it was such a great choice of words to use village. And I just wonder, do you, do you feel like parenting now has, has lost a little bit of that, you know, quote, it takes a village sentiment? No question. No question. We, we've lost, uh, We've lost a lot of that sentiment. I, I think that's for a variety of reasons. I mean, I, I don't think that um, I don't think that social media has helped us uh, um, with that. I mean, I think that you know, when I, I think that we far far too often now we we silo ourselves in, into these little these, these tribes, and you 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 sort of you live near like minded people. You, if you go to church, you're going to church with like minded people. Oftentimes. Your social circles are filled with like-minded people. It's, it's, you know, and it's, it's. I think it's probably always been like that to a certain extent, but I think social media has exacerbated it. So I think we've we've all become very suspicious of each other, hmm. um, and and I, I think that because of that, you know, it's how how dare you say that to my child, hmm. or who do you who do you think you are? Uh, disciplining my, 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 my son or my daughter or so it's, you know, and I was growing up, I grew up in South Carolina. Um, and culturally, I think it's also a little different. You know, you grow up a black kid in South Carolina, you've got like at birth, you've got like 30 cousins, um, like five of, of whom are really your cousin. The other 25, you just remember them as your cousin. And then you get older, you're like, wait a minute, this isn't my real cousin. What are they? Um, and so you, 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 you're born into this, this village. Um, and I, I attribute a great deal of my success, if you will, in life to the village that I had. I grew up in a neighborhood. I write about it in the book. You know, I, neighbors on the left were, were white. 
next door to them is another black family on the corner. I can, I can see it as I'm describing it on the corner where, where the Chong's a Chinese family. They own the Chinese restaurant that was up the street and across the street from them, there's a Lebanese family, the Najums next door to them. We had the Visconti's an Italian family and then another black family and then another white family. It was just this, this hodgepodge of, of cultures. And, and I, I, but we were also, they all had kids around the same age. So we would be in and out of each other's houses and that's how we grew up. And now, you know, with my kids, it's all, you've got to schedule a play date and, you know, you've got to pick up and drop off. And when I was growing up, there's no, there's no scheduling of play dates because you couldn't text and there's no, your kids just showed up at yeah. your door. You just right. saw right. come on in, sure. Are you sitting down for dinner? Oh, I'll invite myself in for mail. Yeah, sure. You know, so it was, I, you know, and I, I, I don't know. And I know I, I sound like my father now. I sound like I'm almost 70. <laughs> but you know, there, was, there, was, there was something magical about that. And we've, we've gotten away from it. And I don't think we ever returned to it. That's a sad part. So I wanted to ask, in the light of all of the, the work you've done on your relationship with your dad and as a result of him committing to his, his recovery, will your children have a very different connection to him than you did for most of your life? They, they already do. You know, my, my son's seven and my daughter's four. They don't know. They don't know the man that I write about in the book. It's, it's my, my younger brother and I, we joke about it now. It's, it's actually become quite comical to see him, to see our dad interact with our children. He has six grandchildren now. And he'll do this thing where he'll FaceTime at you know, like two in the afternoon. He's like, oh, I just, just call us here. The kids are up to him. It's like, well, the kids are in school, dad. Like you, like they, what do you, he's like, oh, when they come home, just, you know, FaceTime, I just want to check in and, you know, he'll, I'll put the phone up. He's like, hey, pop up. And he's asking about their day and they're talking sports and they're showing him stuff. And, you know, he, they, he was up here a few weeks ago, first time since the, uh, the pandemic. They were up for about a week, my mom and my dad, and we went to my son's soccer game on the Saturday morning. Um, my my son, full disclosure, not much of a soccer player. He, he <laughs> more enjoys the fellowship of the sport. Sure. Yeah. But here we are, 30 seconds into the game, uh, and Dell, uh, he scored one goal the entire season. This was the second to last game of the season. And um, 30 seconds in, dribble, 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 shoot, score. And, and, and I, you know, my dad's, you know, he's cheering and hooting and hollering and I'm screaming like the kid just won the green jacket at Augusta. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and then shortly thereafter, I, I, I remember thinking in the moment, I never got this, you know, and it, it's not, that you know, I mean, I'm not bitter about it anymore. I was for a long time, but my kids are getting it. And, and I think that's, that's the beauty of, of my dad's story. It's a story of redemption. It's never too late. It's never too late. And, and my dad's walking, living, breathing proof. I would love to ask this question because this too, a, a lot of the books, you know, really struck me. And I feel like though your life is so different than, than mine, your, your upbringing, you know, you're from a different part of the country than me. And a lot, a lot is different, but I, there was still so much that I could relate to. Um, 
what I'm about to, to, to read this quote that I'm about to read from the book is, is something that really kind of struck me too, because I've, I've had a similar re- realization, but you say it so succinctly and so clearly in the book early on, you say, quote, when you have children, you become more aware of the sacrifices fathers make to provide for their families. I began to see the toll living took on my dad, end quote. And I just wonder what, what was it like for you to have that realization? You know, it was, I wonder you should zero in on that because that, that was one of my biggest takeaways after spending four and a half hours talking to my dad. It's, I don't quote Oprah a lot, Mark, um, but she said something a number of years ago that's always stayed with me. Um, and I think she actually may have, have ripped it off from, from Dr. Maya Angelou, but that's, that's neither here nor there. She said, when we, when we know better, we do better. Mm. And when, when I was a kid, and even when I was teenager, 20s, I, I, didn't, I didn't understand addiction. I didn't understand that it was a disease, an illness that doesn't just affect the person suffering with it, but also those around him or her indirectly. But if you really think about it, the way that society views addiction now, it is, it's dramatically different than it was, I would continue just five or five or 10 years ago. Um, and you rewind 25 years ago, it's, oh, my dad, he's a drunk, he's weak. If he really wanted to, he could get that monkey off his back. And, and he couldn't, and he, he couldn't, and it's, and it didn't help that those around him were, were, were handling it the way that we were handling it, essentially writing him off and putting him in a corner by himself and just carrying on with our lives by and large. And, and so when I became a dad, I started to look at the world differently. Um, I started to look at my own father differently. And, and I came to appreciate, even before I started writing the book, but certainly by the time I was finished with the book, I came to appreciate the sacrifices that, that he had made. My, my dad, my dad worked the third shift at a job he did not like and was very open about his disdain. There's a part in the book where he's joking about going postal and he remembers and that was like a phrase. And, and he was like, you know, if people ever worked at the post office, they'd understand how something like that could be possible. And, and so here was a man who he didn't go to college. He grew up not knowing who his father was. And, and he busts his hump so that his, his three boys could go to college. We all enjoy lives beyond our wildest imaginations. We have beautiful families. And it, it was part of the reason I also wrote it was my dad after rehab started to do this thing where we would have conversations and he would, um, he would start to cry. He would become very um, regretful. Uh, he would talk about how much time he had wasted. And I wanted my dad, while he was able to appreciate it, uh, I wanted him to understand that, that, that we've all gotten to a point where we forgive him and we understand what he was dealing with. So, yeah. That's wonderful. Um, yeah. My last question for you, Craig, would be, you know, I feel like in some ways with books like yours, with podcasts like this one, in some ways we're kind of, you know, bucking a, a trend by by speaking openly about and celebrating fatherhood. I, I wonder when you saw the name modern dadhood come across your desk, what does that phrase mean to you or evoke in you? 
It's funny because I, I, when I heard about you guys, I was like, wow, what a great concept. I think it's funny because, again, not to, not to keep using the phrase, but I write about this in the book. Um, fatherhood has changed so dramatically, I think, and pretty quickly. The expectations of fathers. Like, you know, when I was, I, I can't speak for you guys, but, you know, when I was a kid, my dad, partly because of, of the addiction and partly because of his work schedule, he, he was rarely at things. Like if he was, if he was there, it was a graduation or a wedding or a funeral or it was something big. And my kids, the expectation is that dad's always there. Mm -hmm. And if that's that, if that isn't there, there needs to be a conversation before said event. So dad can explain that he can't be there because dad has to work so that he can help pay for the event that the child is enjoying. And, And so I think, I think the expectations of fatherhood have, have changed so so rapidly in a good way. I would I would contend, um, but modern dads we're doing it all. You know, we're doing it all, and it's it's not just the physical presence; it's the emotional presence. I, I read a book before we had our first child, and I haven't read any book since because you realize you start reading those books. And I'm not even sure those books are written by people who have children. But mm-hmm. anyway, this the, I forget the author, but um, he or she wrote that one of the best things you can do with your, your child is to, is to just talk to them about important stuff, small stuff, silly stuff. Just engage in the art of conversation at an early age. Um, just the give and take. Not, not so they you know, learn how to, to read faster or, or talk faster, uh, but to develop the relationship. Um, because apparently the time comes where your children don't want to speak to you as much. But if you have laid that foundation and you, you've planted those seeds, it becomes a lot easier later in life when children become a bit more complicated than my seven and four-year-old. That's good advice. I just wanted to say, Craig, that I, I think the book is really fantastic. I, I really enjoyed it. And I think it's a great story. And I think that you tell it so well. And I know that I was listening to it. And, and I know that as I was listening to it, so many memories from my own childhood were coming back. Um, you know, my dad didn't have a Le, Le Mans, but he had an old tractor that he was constantly tinkering with that. I don't think he knew what he was doing yeah. at all, but I was usually right there by his side, uh, with the job of having to hand over some kind of tool. And then you, you realize that one of the reasons your dad, I, I, one of the reasons my dad did it was just get out of the house. Yeah. That was, that was his primary motivation. Like even now I'll talk to him sometimes on the phone and I'll talk to my mom and I'm like, where's dad? Oh, I don't know. He's, he's out in the yard and I'll talk to him. I'll talk to him a few hours later. I said, I'm like, pops, I talked to mom earlier. She said, you're out in the yard. What were you doing? Nothing. Just outside. Just out in the yard. That's great. Yeah, that's great. Mark, thank you. Adam, thank you. I've enjoyed this. Dads and moms listening, you can buy Craig Melvin's book, Pops, Learning to Be a Son and a Father at your local bookstore. You can hear Craig himself narrate the book on Audible. And like Mark said, if you like modern dadhood, you're really going to enjoy Pops, and we just can't recommend it enough. Craig, I want to thank you so much for sharing a bit of your time with us to celebrate fatherhood. We want to wish all the best to you, Lindsay, and your kids. Uh, thanks again. Thank you, Craig. Really appreciate it. Thank you both. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed our time together. Be well. Take care, guys. 
Could you step into the chamber? It sounds like what you were telling me is that it's time for confessions. Confessions. (laughs) Sometimes my kids will rattle off a whole string of words, and without having even the slightest idea of what they said, I'll reply, Oh, really? Cool. I'm at a stage in my life where show tunes are stuck in my head all day long, and I'm mostly okay with that. Confessions. 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 I once ate an entire sleeve of Tate's chocolate chip cookies in the car while my kids were in the back seat, and I didn't offer a single bite. In fact, I never said a single word. Tate's gluten-free chocolate chip cookies are far superior to the original Tate's chocolate chip. False. They actually are better. Periodically, if I find crumbs on the floor, I'll just kick them under the couch. Even if it takes two or three kicks to get them there. Confessions. Confessions. Earlier today, my daughter opened her car door a little too much and it left a small scratch on the car next to us. You're probably thinking I'm going to say that we didn't leave a note. We left a note. There was a spider in the house. I hate spiders. The boys saw me lunge toward it with a fistful of paper towel and fire in my eyes. They said, Daddy, what are you doing? I said, uh, capturing it to set it free? Oh, I set it free all right. Free to death. That was a really good one. That was a really good one. Confession. Here we is. Dads and moms listening, you can find us at moderndadhood.com, on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon, all the other ones, wherever you like to listen. And wherever you do listen, please subscribe and leave a rating and a review. Throw us in your Sony Discman. Oh, also, hey, tell a friend, would you? Word of mouth, you have no idea. It's like so super duper important to us. We would love for you to follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Maybe YouTube, but I don't. Rude. And we'd be tickled if you went to moderndadhood.com and bought yourself a, a t-shirt. Or a modern dad hoodie. Sometimes I take the modern dad hoodie and just ball it up and use it as a, as a pillow take little quick cat naps on the floor while my kids play. That's a, that is a vision. Yeah, I gotta take the opportunities when they come along, you know, for those naps. Hey, while you're, while you're there at the website, you can drop us a line at hey at moderndadhood.com if you like. Why don't you give, here, I challenge a listener out there, 
shoot us some ideas for uh, for a topic. You know, there's stuff we haven't covered yet. Thank you, as always, to our friends Casper Babypants and Spencer Albee for the music in Modern Dadhood, to Pete Morse at Red Vault Audio for making us sound as good as we possibly can, considering we are still largely recording in different spots, and thank you very much to Craig Melvin and his team for making this fantastic conversation happen. And thank you for listening. Mother. <laughs>